I remember telling him like, no, please. Like now I'm, I know that I am for lack of a better word. Like I know that I'm about to die. And so I roll onto my hands and knees and I look up at him and I see the gun pointed at my head and I hear the trigger click. And I had so much pain to my face. The only thing that my brain could process was I had just been shot. No comment. <laughs> no, we didn't kill the dog. Probably blame me for being an idiot, but. And which you were, which we all were. <laughs> you have to make it to where crime doesn't pay. You have to deter crime, whether it's crime or terrorism, it's the same principle. You have to clash with supervision. You have to, or nothing will get done. Supervisors can't learn how to supervise, and you can't learn how to respect a supervisor without confrontation. It has to happen. <laughs> Do not take that out. JV team for life. What's up, everybody? Just want to give a quick shout-out to Zero Nine Holsters. These guys are cop-owned, cop-operated, cop-tested, all right? Based out of Ohio, um, they have gear for everything, holsters, equipment. I use them for magazines, radio. They have everything. So you can either order online through them, or you can go on their website and find who sells them in their shops in case you're one of those people that wants to go and physically look at it. On this podcast, we talk about real important issues in our culture um it's hard to do sometimes uh you know and a a lot of people don't support us and don't want these messages out there zero nine holsters supports us 100 percent. they agree with everything they that we say and they're like we're down let's do it so by supporting them you're supporting us and uh so if you buy holsters or you know you need equipment holders radio anything you need Go to 09 Holsters, right? And when you check out, use promo code ANTIHERO10Z9. ANTIHERO10Z9. That'll get you 10% off your order. So go show them some love. Thanks, guys. Amateur move. Ready? (laughs) I bet we can line up the sound. That's right. (coughs) 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 Welcome back to the Antihero Podcast, part Delta Force, part Street Cop. All podcasts. I'm Tyler, owner of Refracted Wolf Apparel, All American Outsider Apparel. Use promo code Antihero for 15% off the best graphic tees, Ranger panties, sweatshirts, stickers, flags, you name it, we got it. And I'm Brent Tucker, owner of FRCC, coffee, cigars, all your bad habits, you can get them there. Use FRCC 15 and get 15% off. How long have you not been a cop? Well, my shooting was in 2019, so we're going on five years. Man, do you like it? Do you, do you enjoy the civilian life better? You know, it's not too bad being retired. <laughs> being <laughs> retired at 31 years old, I mean, it has its pros and cons. I do miss the job. I miss what it was like back in 2016, 2017, 18, you know, when policing still had its place in the world. But, you know, it's not all that bad. I tell everybody, too. Liberal policing starts in Cali, works its way to New York, goes down to Florida, and then shoots diagonally Midwest. Yeah, and like that's the, like the tactical retreat that started in Cali, and it just did its full circle around the U.S. Yeah, California is the breeding ground for all things bad, so not surprised. <laughs> so, um, your story was brought to us by the guys at Whiskey and Windage. As soon as they were done with you, they called us, and they're like. She did awesome on our show, but we think that she'll be even better for your show based off of the law enforcement aspect and stuff like that. And they kind of gave me a rundown, and then I, you know, and I actually knew who you were because I had followed you and seen you on like Fox News and all that stuff, which is pretty cool. 
That is really cool. Well, shout out to them. It was probably Adam, I'm guessing. Adam and Mike, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that was really nice. Yeah, they're super cool. I was really grateful to go and talk with them. Well, I, I love that you're going, getting out there and telling your story um, because if you don't continue to tell your story, as we know, pe- people forget you know, it's a 24-hour news cycle, and I think people need to be either reminded of it or the different audiences that will see one podcast but, but not the other deserve right. to hear this story. I mean, that when, when I heard the story, which we'll get into, won't, won't keep you guys at bay for that much longer, uh, it blew my mind. Like it's... Uh, like we were talking but before the podcast started, it seemed like it would be a headline from Babylon B, but here it is again, uh, a real world headline. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, my, it's not an isolated incident. Like it happened to me and it was traumatic and obviously it altered the course of my life, but this is happening to our law enforcement, not just in California, but all across the country. And victims of crime are being re-victimized by this social justice experiment of this criminal justice system that we have now. And I just refuse to let what happened to me be the defining moment of my life. So that's why I've been pushing for the last you know, nine months to tell my story and make an actual change and do something about it. And, and what it seems like to me, that the irony of it, this woke movement, you know, that, that you're, that you referred to. And I agree whether they mean to or not, they end up protecting the criminals and it's the people that they hurt the most, which they say that they want to protect, or maybe they do intentionally want to protect is the people they hurt the most because law abiding citizens are not going to get the protection that they need as police and law enforcement continue to leave the job or don't want to go do the job to 100% with the enthusiasm that they used to have, because what's the reward for it? Not getting backed, having your own city turn on you, having lawyers go against you, having juries come out with, with crazy decisions. Yeah. It's like, that was the you know, summer of mayhem of 2020, we saw it in the Ferguson effect of 2015. And then we saw the Minneapolis effect of 2020. And it was like, that was the headline, the narrative to be anti-cop, you know, defund the police. And like you said, all that did was burn down their own neighborhoods. They became victims of crime. And I just saw Louisiana declared a state of emergency to be able to hire more cops because they have no one that's willing to do the job. (laughs) And I think people should really look at that and say, okay, well, if I'm in a car accident and I call 911, am I going to be stuck in a car for 20 minutes? Or if I'm, you know, the victim of a home invasion robbery, like you're having hour long wait times. All that does is re-victimize the people that the BLM movement was supposed to protect. So I think, like I said, it was a failed social justice experiment. And I really hope that 2024 is the year of, you know, people wakening up and standing up and becoming activated to actually get their country back. Go Trump. That's right. (laughs) You know what? He honestly is the only one that can fix this. Like, I swear I will die on that hill. We need him back. What do you, what, when you go on Fox news, what's the, um, like, what are the, the topics that, and forgive me when I'm like, when you go on Fox news, but I just think that's so cool. Um, but what's your specialty? What do you talk about? Is it PTSD? Is it? 
No. So actually, I mean, I dabbled in like the mental health, but because they have specialists to contribute in the mental health field, I just talk about law and crime. So I'm a law and crime contributor for basically California. We do talk a little bit about, you know, nationwide stuff, but it's mostly just our beautiful state of California. So whenever there's like a hot topic or the crime crisis is what I specialize in, (laughs) then Fox calls me down and we get to do a cool little segment. The crime crisis. Yep. That's me. So um, you became a cop in? 2016. 2016. And I guess go ahead and give us your background as far as when, when you entered, why you entered it, and then your pedigree, and then initially what happened. Yeah, so I'm super boring, so be prepared to be unenthused. But I <laughs> went to school for nursing. I was like a typical girl after high school. I wanted to be a nurse and I was in love with the medical field. I actually was interested in trauma and I was in the middle of nursing school and my friend said, Hey, you should come on a ride along, kind of see what it's like. It's, you know, kind of interesting. So I did. And I was hooked. You know, I was one of those people that the ride along got me within like two hours. We were in a pursuit. It was a felony T stop. It was like the epitome of what you want to drag people into law enforcement. And I also can I, saw the sign Can I ask of, you one question? Yeah. Were you dating this cop? No, it was a girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, it's 2024, so you can't ask. But no, it wasn't. All right, sorry, keep going. No, it's okay. So, yeah, I got to see the side of, like, the community engagement. Like I said, this was back in 2015 when I went on this ride-along. So the world was a little different, you know, back then. And people still were happy to see you as law enforcement. I got to you know, be involved in investigations with child, you know, child crime. And I just got to see like, it was a 12 hour shift of like the entire institution of law enforcement, I felt like. So I was like, this is what I want to do. And I applied for the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department. It was the area that I lived in. And within like six, seven months, I was in the academy. So I started January of 2016. I graduated the academy June of 2016. And then the way our sheriff's department works is you go to corrections. So I went and worked at a detention center for about three or four months. And then I was selected to go to what's called the centralized classification unit. It's like the in-house gang team. So I would look at criminal records and I would classify inmates based on where they're going to go into the population. And then about six, seven months later, I went out to Victorville City for patrol. I did my field training time there and I was on patrol for about two years maybe a little under two years. And then I was a school resource officer for elementary schools. So I was assigned to six different elementary schools. And then once the school year ended June of 2019, then I went back to patrol. And then September 4th, 2019 was the day of my shooting. So we started law enforcement at the same time. I started the Academy January, 2016 and graduated in June. And I remember before I started the Academy, it was like, that was the summer of 2015 when like Dallas happened and Baton Rouge happened and all these police shootings were happening. It was like almost like an attack on cops was like very apparent. Yeah. That was like the, you know, Ferguson effect when we saw that whole world change, but I still felt like cops still had a place in society and there were still pockets of people, but you still felt like you were needed and wanted and you were still able to do your job. Like I, I can honestly say for myself, I loved going to work. I loved my job. And, you know, I stopped 
going, well, my last day of work was September 4th, 2019. And I can't even imagine what it's like being a cop now after, you know, the era of COVID and the George Floyd stuff and the riots. I can't even imagine what it's like now. Well, let's let's touch on a a few things that you talked about uh, in your career leading up to your incident was. And the first thing uh, is corrections. Did you did you know early on that that was something that you're going to have, you know, a stamp that you're going to have to get punched, you know, on on your way forward? And and how was that time in, in the correction facility? Yeah, so that's just, you know, like the step after you graduate the academy, everybody goes to corrections and you basically wait your turn to go out to patrol. So at that time, it was like a year and a half, two year long wait list to go out to patrol, depending on what station you wanted to go to. And, you know, the jail is the jail. I did learn a lot. I was able, I worked nights. So during the day, I would go to a lot of classes. I tried to really, you know, broaden my knowledge. I did a lot of at the time I was interested in gangs. So I was doing a lot of, you know, classes just to get familiar. Like I said, I was the first person in my family to become a cop. I didn't have other people to, you know, bounce ideas off of. So I was trying to get as much knowledge as I could. So I, you know, I don't think anybody really likes the jail, but I was appreciative (laughs) for my time. I, you know, learned how to talk to, you know, pedophiles and, you know, murderers and low level drug offenders and Mexican mafia people. Like you learn how to speak because obviously once you get out to patrol, it's a whole new ball game. So I appreciated my time there. Did you ever run across a guy that you're like, that dude's worse than I even thought would, would be in this type of environment? Cause obviously you have, you have your ideal criminal. If you know everyone does, whether they want to think about it or not, who, who you think is going to be in the jail. So did you have anyone that was worse than you could ever think about as a human being? And another, and on the flip side of that, someone's like, how did you ever get in jail? You don't belong here. Yeah. So prop 47 really changed the game where, you know, instead of going to prison, they were now being housed in the County jail. So there was people like we, I remember this one guy, he was like a made Mexican mafia dude and he was sent up from the cartel and he was involved in like a triple homicide and it was like very brutal an axe. Like I remember he had a hammer and he like loved to talk about it. He had no, <laughs> no problem talking about it. And so part of my job under the centralized classification unit is I'm supposed to get, you know, their involvement after they've already talked to homicide and all that. And this guy is just like trauma vomiting all over me. And I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> like you're proud of this. Like this is a little odd, but you know, it gave me an idea that, Of course, being a female, and I know we'll touch on this later, but people want to talk to a female. So I was able to get a lot more information and a lot more, you know, idea about crimes and criminal behavior than my male partners. So not to say like, I I believe that. Yeah. Not to say I was like happy about that, but I used that to try and become a better cop, a better investigator. And, you know, there was definitely people that got caught up wrong place, wrong time, you know, whether it was you know, their friend committed a crime and they happened to be in the car. And you could tell those people that were genuine good people and they just got mixed up. And, you know, that is one good thing about the justice system, but I don't think it's that way anymore. And maybe I'm biased, but that's my opinion. What's your, what's your take on female corrections officers or deputies falling for guys in the jail, the prisoners? And it sounds so silly to talk about, but it's very common And everybody cynically chalks it up to, that's a woman for you. Yeah, you know, and people are probably going to roll their eyes when I say this and say, 
you know, oh, well, it's because she's a female. But I think it goes both ways. I think men, especially in corrections, are very manipulative. We would see it all the time where our custody assistants would fall for, you know, the beefy guy that works out and does push-ups and he's batting his eyelashes and he's going to promise her the world. And then she ends up letting him go or she puts money on his commissary. And I just don't <laughs> understand it. It's like, if you're that desperate, like go to a bar. Like, why are you, in, why are you looking at inmates? Like what is so attractive about people that commit crimes? I never understood it, but you know, I think it is twofold. I think people, especially women, they feel like they have this idea that they have to prove more they have to be a little harder. They have to be a little bit more tenacious because you have to prove yourself to your male partners. And I think that can carry over into the inmates. And, you know, it's all about perception. If you don't want to come off a certain way, then don't be that way. This is the, the controversial thing I say, which isn't going to be controversial at all. The problem that I think we end up having is we're not playing to our strengths. And what I mean by that is women aren't going to come in and be the enforcers. And so for them to try to prove that to their male counterparts, just like you said, there's things that, that information you'll get out of men that won't tell a 6'4", 220-pound male counterpart because that guy's, you know, his defenses are up. He's not going to talk to them. He's going to look at him as another threat, and he's going to act like a hard dude in front of that, in front of that person. Right. So instead of females and males just playing to their strengths we have this weird society that really gets put on females more that mm -hmm. you need to be everything you need to be pretty you need to be strong you need to be able to fight you need to be able to put on makeup you need to be able to do all these things when i'm not saying you're not capable of doing it but it's not your strengths and so i don't know personally Obviously, I don't have to deal with it. I'm not a female. I don't know why they feel the need to have to prove that something that's not one of their strengths. Right. No, I agree 100%. You know, I, like I said, I didn't come, I came from a family where my dad was in like the business tech world and my mom stayed at home. So I wasn't born into this family of like military service and, you know, service above self and all this stuff. But I found that through being, like you said, a nurturing female, not to say I would nurture criminals, but nurture myself and understanding that I am not going to go hands-on with, you know, a drunk guy in a bar at 2 a.m., but I can also go and talk to the sex abuse victim because I'm a female and we have that connection. So, you know, me and my yeah. partners, if I knew I was being dispatched to something that may put me in a a bad situation just because I am a female. Look, I'm not afraid to say that there are differences between men and women. I do think that there is a seat for everyone at the table, but I'm not going to go hands-on with somebody who, you know, is beyond what I can control. And that's just the truth. You know, we have tools on our belt, but why would I not call a male partner? Just like my male partners would call me for suicides. If there was somebody sitting right. on the edge of a bridge, they would say, Hey, Megan, can you come over yeah. here? Absolutely. And that's not to take away from them. But, you know, women do have the gift of gab. I do have that motherly instinct where maybe I can be a more calming presence. And I think in law enforcement or any field, we should play into that and use it to our advantage. Well, you're not the only one saying that men and women are different. Let's, let's be honest here. Yeah. The Olympics say that. The NBA right. says that. The PGA sells that. Everybody says that when national championships and gold medals are on the line. I don't know why it's so easy to say that then, but we can't say that apparently anywhere else in life. And I just, I just think that's a little ridiculous.
Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it comes down to, well, you're entering a male dominated field. So you need to be at the same level as your male partners, because you know what you signed up for, because you're wearing the same patches and carrying the same tools, which I agree, we should all be held to the same standard as law enforcement, of course. But when it comes to tactical abilities, just because you are able to talk down a situation doesn't mean that's not tactical. You know what right. I mean? Like I think that's playing to your strengths. Yeah, exactly. And right. I think that that should be something that's encouraged, not downplayed. No, I agree with you 100%. So the question that I wanted to ask you before we move into your story was after you went through what you went through, we're keeping everybody on their toes. They're like, what is this story? <laughs> <laughs> um, yep. Do you think that females end up being good cops? And if so, you know, what's your take on that? And what would you suggest to a female that is in law enforcement that's going through all the things that they go through? Yeah, 100%. I think that, you know, I said it just a few minutes before. I think there's a seat for everyone at the table. And if you're entering this profession with the right mindset and the right end goal, you know, if you're looking at it for benefits or because you want to be surrounded by people all day long, this is probably not the job for you. There's probably something better out there. But if you believe in what you are having to do every day, then absolutely go for it. You know, when I was a cop, I wanted to be very proficient with my weapons. So I would spend at least one or two days on my off days going to the range, practicing, not to knock the academy, but everything is static. You shoot from the three, yeah. three to the chest, two to the head. That's not real life. And I knew that. And I wanted to be better. So I took it upon myself to do firearms. In hindsight, I wish that I would have enrolled in jujitsu or some ground combat course because, you know, I ended up fighting for my life and I ended up being on my back and that was a really bad position to be in, of course. So I wish I would have, you know, dabbled into that, you know, but I think that as long as you have the right mindset, it really goes for both men and women. I think men enter this profession with the wrong mindset and they end up being either you know, fired, relieved of duty, or they get injured, injure somebody else because they don't have that right mindset. And I think it's the same for women, really. Yeah. And I mean, and I've, you could go the oldest, the oldest tale of time when you talk about throwing a woman into a squad of alpha males. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter how morally good you are as a male cop. I think it's biological to look at that woman differently, whether it's um, like, naturally wanting to protect her more than the guy to your right or the flip side they're like i want to see if i can woo this woman and it's mm -hmm. like that's not what you're there for you're there to go to work every day and and i've seen that firsthand multiple times mm -hmm. yeah i mean i was very fortunate and i i'm going to be very authentic i had my male partners that looked out for me like I would respond to a call and I would have somebody backing me. I never felt like I was lesser than, I never felt like they looked at me like I was weaker. It was like, we all knew, you know, we had a guy who was prior military, so he was able to be a little bit more hands-on. They knew, we all knew each other's strengths and weaknesses. If I knew my partner was being dispatched to a child sex crime, I would probably go with him to be that supporting element. And we didn't dog each other for it. We just knew that, no. you know, it's a team. Honestly, it's a team sport. It's a team game. You yeah. have to help out your partners and know, and that just comes from experience. But I also think, and I will throw down women for just half of a second. 
it is how you perceive yourself. So if you look at yourself as having to prove yourself or, you know, I need to put on this big superhero cape and have this Superman complex, people are going to see through that. Like there's nothing wrong with admitting that, you know, Hey, if I'm going to a call, can you back me on this? There's no shame in that. Like we don't need to pretend that we're something we're not. You know, I'll, I'll put it in a, in, in a different spin as well. Uh, Megan, how tall are you? Five, eight. How much do you weigh? Like 145. You're not supposed to ask. It's rude. Uh, <laughs> Actually, you're, you, I don't think this is going the way Brent thought it was. I thought you were going to say five foot two, 100 soaking you, wet. You are, no, you are slightly, you are slightly larger than I thought you were. No, then, no, no. no. <laughs> I got to go. That, I got to go. That doesn't negate my point. And this is, and this is where I'm going with this. Even in special operations, when the target is done, and we, and we go off into separate rooms, putting hands on people and moving people. I can go with the six foot two guy that's 220, with, you know, or I could go with my five foot eight male counterpart, that's 140, and guess who I'm gonna go with? He can handle himself, he's a large guy. I'm gonna choose to go support him. And right. sometimes women will look at that and be like, oh, you came with me because I'm a female? No, I'd have made the same decision if, if you were a male and at the end of the day, sometimes it just comes down to height and weight. There's, yeah. there's nothing you can do to, well, that's not true. It, it, I actually agreed with what you said, getting involved in BJJ. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of that and a big fan of doing combatives, but at the end of the day that can help you, but that's why they have weight classes in fighting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, and I hate to say it so circumstantial because that's such a vague answer, but you have to be honest with yourself and you have to have like a self-reflecting moment. And I know that's really worldly, but I think in the world of policing that we're seeing now, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. So people are wanting to be that, you know, Clark Kent figure and they're wanting to go out there and prove to their partners yeah. and to the world that they're worthy of being a cop when you really only have to prove it to yourself and your agency. And I think that's one of the downfalls that we've seen over the last, you know, two, three, four years is the credibility has gone out the window. So people are trying to overcompensate. Well, I, I can tell you right now, you, I, I didn't get to talk to you before this podcast. Me, even me as a co-host, I've thoroughly enjoyed this so far in your mindset and you know, how, how level-headed you are, especially, you know, a, after all this. So Thank that you. being said, I'm not going to tease everyone uh, anymore. Let's let let's get into uh, what the incident, what called you there, and 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 start from that. Yeah. So it was September 4th, 2019. <clears throat> it was around eight o'clock in the morning. We received a 911 call of an unknown problem. It was the mom calling dispatch saying, "Get my son out of here! Oh my God! Oh my God!" wasn't really giving too much more information to dispatch other than that. And I was in the area. My partners were doing some in-custody paperwork that was responsible for that beat. So I said, you know, send it to me. I'm in the area. So as I'm driving to this address, it gets bumped up from a priority two to a priority one response because the mom stopped answering questions to dispatch, but she's still on the phone. So she, you can still hear commotion in the background. But and, you can't and let really... people know what that means. Sorry to interrupt you, but, but what the difference between priority two and priority one? Yeah, sorry. So a priority two is like we need to get there, but it's not like an imminent danger. 
and you know you don't need to go lights and sirens it's nothing emergent but get there you know within you, a reasonable you can, you can finish your coffee in the gas station parking lot while you're talking with somebody yeah it's like <laughs> get there you know don't dilly dally but get there and yeah. then a priority one is like we need you know immediate response right now you know okay. for us there was a level above which was emergency like you know a crime in progress such as a home invasion robbery a shooting stabbing something where there's bodily injury imminent it's happening and so that would warrant lights and sirens a priority one depending when it really so i did not go code to this call i just got there and i, okay. I arrived on scene within i think three or four minutes of the initial call so like i said i was right in the area and dispatch was trying to ask the mom questions and she wasn't responding so I arrive and I park like two houses down. The house is at the very south end of a cul-de-sac. And I start walking up to make contact. And as soon as I break the threshold of like the roadway and the driveway, I see the front door open and out comes walking the suspect. It's the address. I've verified the numbers and he's matching the description. And the mom, the reporting party, follows right behind him. And she's holding like a large kitchen knife and she's on the phone with dispatch on the other. So, you know, I'm seeing this and I have like seconds to process and my mindset is, okay, well, this mom is in such fear of her son that she has armed herself for protection. You know, I have kids and I've never felt the need to walk around with a butcher knife to protect myself. So something had happened in that house where she felt the need to protect herself. So, you know, the suspect walks directly towards me. We've made eye contact and he's mad. I can tell it's not a good day for him. And my first statement to him is, hey, relax. Like, what's going on? Relax. I'm trying to just talk to him because at that time, I still didn't even know why I was there. Mom didn't give us, you know, any more information. So I'm trying to conduct an investigation. But, you know, and I feel like I have to say this because it, it played such a huge role in the court system was the beginning steps of investigation is to render the scene safe. So you have to conduct a detention based on reasonable suspicion so I just was going to pat down his pockets. He wasn't under arrest. I just was conduct my, you know, pat down his pockets for weapons. As soon as I start to place his hand to the small of his back, he gives me his right hand, but his left hand, he's doing that typical, you know, passive aggressive, pulling away from me, but not actively fighting. Yeah. So I'm telling him, relax, relax. What's going on? And he tells me, if we fight, I'm going to kill you. And I remember telling him, like, you don't want to do that. You know, like. I took him serious, but again, I'm still trying to just yes, do my job. Exactly. Yeah. So I go to pat down in his pockets and I'm still trying to get that left hand and I'm, you know, behind him, but I'm offline and he tells me I'm going to headbutt the fuck out of you. So I go to step offline. Obviously I'm not trying to get headbutted. And then as soon as I, you know, shift my weight, he spins around and he grabs my left wrist and we're like tug of warring over my hand. And I'm telling him, you know, let go of me, let go of me. And he's just refusing. So we move into, I'm trying to do, you know, the defensive tactics, figure four takedown, trying to wrench his arm behind his back, trying to get his legs out from underneath him. Nothing's working because he would not let go of my wrist. So he pulled my wrist to the point where he actually broke the base of my thumb. And the way that my gear was on my duty belt, I couldn't reach around to my taser because it was on the opposite side. So the weapon I had available was my baton and I go to, did you, know, you did you know that your thumb, something happened, had happened to it or was the adrenaline going and you didn't feel it? Kind of both. Like I knew I was in a situation where like, cause I had been in fights before 
And I knew that this, like the hair on the back of my neck told me that this was different. You know, like I had been able to, I, like I said, I had been in fights, but I've always been able to talk them down, get them into handcuffs, do something. And this guy was like, I could see it in his eyes. He was not there. And a lot, a lot of people don't understand that aren't cops is that you got out of the car thinking that you were just going to a routine DV. You were going to talk, let some people talk it out. Maybe somebody was going to go to jail for putting their hands on mob, whatever. But that's a very standard call for law enforcement. And then within, I mean, I don't know, minutes, a short amount of time, your heart rate's probably four times the normal speed and you are fighting a fight that you just said, I know this is different. Like this is, this, this is a different fight. Right. So it was like 17 seconds after I arrive on scene that we start fighting. So wow. before that video kicked on, we fought for like almost two and a half, three minutes. So, you know, I went <laughs> through all the motions. I was, you know, doing everything I could. Like I said, I'm not a small person. Like I'm, I'm a bigger person and I do work out regularly. Like I pride myself in taking care of my body and I was doing everything I could. I take my baton and I try and strike him. He grabs it for me, throws it in the gravel. And then as soon as he takes my baton, he grabs my bun on the back of my head and he pulls me down, you know, and he's trying to knee me in the face. So now I grab his hair and I'm trying to pull him off balance, you know, trying to, you know, even out the score and, What's that mom doing was, during this? Is mom just yelling? Is she she trying to assist? What's mom doing? So I found about this afterwards, but she had somehow three-wayed with grandma and CHP dispatch and our dispatch. So they heard everything. Dispatch heard everything going on through mom's okay. cell phone. So mom said that she was going to grab the baton and try and hit him, but she was afraid of him. So she just stood there and watched. Okay. So, you know, as... I grab his hair. That is honestly when the fight escalated to like, this is a life and death fight that triggered him beyond anything that I ever thought. And then he starts punching me in the face over and over and over again. And then now we had moved into the roadway and that's when the video kicks on. So you can see, can, him I, punching can I ask me. you, um, is this a fight where it started, where he was trying to get away and it turned into like, now I'm going to hurt this cop or was it, I'm going to hurt this cop the whole time. I guess it depends how you look at it. Um, he, you can hear him on my audio say like, just let me leave. But he was not trying to leave. He was standing like squared up against me. He had his fist clenched. Like he wanted a confrontation. He wasn't trying to, you know, walk around me. He claimed that he was like, let me go. Let me leave. I just want to leave. But you know, I also knew based on, hate to say training and experience that something had happened in that house. So I wasn't going to let you leave. Like nobody at that scene is free to leave. So I wasn't right. going to let him just walk away. Cause how do I know there's not a dead body in the house? Well, so, if, if you're going to take him for his word, when he says, let me leave, you also have to take him at his word when he says, I'm going to headbutt you and I'm going to kill you. Right. Yeah. You know, and my thought was again, for the whole like 20 seconds, we're talking I never said, you know, any expletives. I never gave him a reason to be like amped up. I never said like, no, you're arrested. You're going to jail. I was telling him like, relax, like calm down, like just relax, talk to me. And it was nothing of the sort. Nobody ever said like, okay, just let me talk to you. It was immediately threats. So at that time when he, you know, I don't need to tell you guys this, but once he makes those threats, that's a felony offense. You can't do that. I could have arrested him right then and there but I was still just trying to figure out why I was there. So 
you know, now this video had kicked on and he punched me over and over in the face and the head. And <clears throat> I could feel like those black curtains, you know, like I could feel yeah. that I was starting to lose consciousness. I was starting to lose this fight. And again, I'm not too prideful enough to take like a, a ground and pound beating without defending myself. So I take my gun out and you can hear me tell him I'm going to shoot you. And I got ripped apart for this on the stand. But my mindset was, I didn't want to shoot this son in front of his mom. You know, I was still trying to deescalate because I thought as a reasonable person, if a cop or anybody tells me to stop or I'm going to shoot you, I would probably stop what I'm doing because I don't want to get shot. Well, not to him. This, you would think. And, you know, maybe that's naive on my part. But again, I didn't wake up with the intention to kill someone that morning. I don't think anybody ever does. So, you know, I tell him I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to shoot you. And then we fall into the ground and he mounts on top of me and I take aim at his head and I miss. And then he kind of straddles me off to the side and he pins my arm above my head like this. And I'm still holding onto my gun and he wraps his hand around my hand. So he has like part of his hand in the trigger guard. And then now he has his other hand around the slide. So a round gets discharged into the ground and unbeknownst to me, it had malfunctioned, which caused a stovepipe. And he's able to rip the gun from my hands. And I remember telling him like, no, please. Like now I'm, I know that I am fucked for lack of a better word. Like I know that I'm about to die. And so I roll onto my hands and knees and I look up at him and I see the gun pointed at my head and I hear the trigger click. And I had so much pain to my face. The only thing that my brain could process was I had just been shot. But I knew that I was still alive. So I was like, we got to get out of here. Like we have to run for cover. So I turn and I run and I start running towards, you know, a house and I hear another gunshot go off and I know he's shooting at my back. And I, you know, simultaneously, I'm like, I don't want to run towards this house because that's not a good backdrop. I don't want him to shoot into this house. What if there's people in the living room? So I, you know, divert right really quick. And I go and I'm trying to scale a fence, but it's like that sheer fake wood and there's nothing that I can do. And I I can see him walking towards me. Like I'm going to get ambushed, hunted down like a rabbit. And miraculously dispatch knew that I wasn't responding. And what happened was I had my earpiece running down my vest. And when he grabs my hair, he disconnected my radio piece. So I was trying to put out to dispatch, like I'm 415, I'm in a fight. And I remember hearing nothing. It was just silent. And I'm like, where are my people? Like, I'm not hearing anybody respond. And dispatch knew I wasn't responding. So she sent everybody to me. So within, you know, you've seen on the video, as soon as he's coming to me, three of my partners come down the cul-de-sac. They take his attention. He shoots at them. They get into a gunfight. I think he's shot seven or eight times. He's taken to the hospital. I'm taken to the hospital. And yeah. Megan, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I was given the, the Reader's Digest version of the story, um, obviously, uh, before you came on. I don't want to say I had prejudged you by, by any means. You know, it's, it's, you, you just hear the story and you're like, okay, I'm interested to, you know, to, to hear your version. Your version blows me away. Uh, it's, it, there was nothing you did wrong. Everything was, you know, just worst case scenario. Um, and that's, and knowing, and I'm not going to tease anyone e- anymore like we did at the beginning of it, and knowing how this story ends, 
it blows me away. I was upset before I heard your story, and now I'm, I'm just I'm flabbergasted. I can't think of a better way without cussing over and over again about uh, what the legal system does to you. Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, it's one of the reasons why I decided to go public because I was laying in the hospital bed and my boyfriend, he's my husband now, but he was my boyfriend at the time, him and my sister come to the hospital and, you know, CSI is doing their DNA swabs and they're taking pictures and, you know, they're doing all their things. And they come to me and they're like, Megan, there's a video. Well, at the time we didn't have body worn cameras. So I'm like a video of what? And like, I didn't put two and two together that somebody had videoed what happened to me. And instead of being like, oh, because, and I know this is going to sound bad, but I knew as a white female cop getting into a shooting with an unarmed black man, I knew that I was going to be ripped apart. And once I knew there was a video, I was like, I'm done. Like, how can I ever be seen again. I am so ashamed. A cop's worst nightmare is having your gun used against you. And the fact that now it's public, and I think it was like an hour or two later, and it had circulated all the way to Japan, Australia, 13 million times in less wow. than like half a day. And I had to go into hiding. We had to have you know our, our intelligence division come and hide out from my house. I had to take down all my social media. My daughter was getting talked to at school from other parents. And I just went into like crisis mode. Like now, not only am I mentally and physically jacked up, but everybody saw this and I don't have a chance to defend myself because he was alive and I knew that there was going to be litigation. And so immediately within like 12 hours, I was seeing podcasts do roundtables and breaking down the video and talking about like, this is why women shouldn't be cops. And I'm like, yeah. if you guys only knew the truth, if you only knew what happened, I cannot wait to tell my truth. And then obviously, you know, the courts weren't really in my favor, but. Yeah, let's talk about the courts uh, and, and, and what happened through that uh, legal process. And then, of course, what uh, the great citizens of Southern California decided on. Yeah, so, you know couple months later, the world ended with COVID and it really slowed down the court process and which was okay for me because I was really in the trenches with my PTSD and mental health. I wasn't ready to sit on a stand, but, you know, almost four years later, May of 2023, we went to trial and he had retained a public defender named, I don't even want to say his name, so I don't want to give him airtime, but, um, <laughs> I almost caught myself. <laughs> He, uh, you know, he's a special type of person. He had been on a documentary about a quadruple homicide defending this person. And I already knew about him from watching this. And once I found out that he was the defense attorney, I was, I was like, all bets are off. But he was charged with six felonies, um, attempted murder of a police officer, assault with a deadly weapon, causing great bodily injury, removal of a peace officer's firearm, resisting arrest, battery, and something else. Can't quite remember. And he was, had a couple of firearm enhancements. And he was looking at like 55 years to life. And he had always pled not guilty, but the summer of 2022, he changed his plea to not guilty by reasons of insanity. And we knew that was going to alter the course of the trial because now it was going to be split into like a two-part trial. The first part would be the criminal portion. Did he commit these crimes? Guilty, not guilty, whatever. And then the second portion would be 
is he insane or is he sane? And the jury would come to conclusion because even though the doctors found him sane to stand trial, that what that's what California affords you as a second part trial. So I already knew that we were going to be having a little bit of a difficulty, especially, like I said, after 2020. But I really honestly never expected what happened. Um, it was a three-week-long trial. I was cross-examined for three days by the defense attorney. It was the most traumatizing experience. You know, you think having a gun pointed to your forehead is bad? I'll take that all day besides, you know, being cross-examined for my own life. I was called horrendous things. I was called a racist. I was called an attention whore. That I woke up that morning and I staged all of this because I wanted attention. And, and I the made, judge allowed that? Oh yeah. The judge did not object to a single thing. My defense or my my district attorney did not object to anything. I was literally, you know, Marcy's law protects you under the California Constitution. I got no Marcy's law rights. I got no victim rights because I was a cop. So within two hours of being cross-examined, he starts going in about the unlawful detention that I had no right to be there. I had no right to put hands on him, that he was in self-defense of me. So anything that happened after my initial contact was justified. And I'm sitting up there, like I said, for three days trying to defend this, that as a cop, we all know reasonable suspicion, a 911 call for help, furtive movements, you know, high drug area, high crime area, whatever it may be, that's the standard for a detention. And I got no help from my attorney. She just sat there and stared at me. I don't even know if she was like daydreaming. And I remember there was one <laughs> point where I'm staring at her, waiting for her to object. And the defense attorney goes, Megan, you're a big girl. You can answer for yourself. And I'm like, this is honestly like, this is a joke. Like I'm being punked. This is not a real jury trial. So, you know, we start well, going. I, I feel like, cause I know that we're, we were going to talk about the, the trial next when you were explaining everything you were thinking and all the, um, clues, if, if you call it, uh, demeanor hits and things he said and what you were thinking, I'd, like I said, I was already thinking ahead to this conversation. I thought you did an amazing job just earlier in this podcast defending yourself. I, I even hate to use that word, defending yourself. But what would you would have end up having to defend yourself? And I thought everything you just told to us clearly would have exonerated you in court. Yeah, you know, I thought so. And one of the things that I really battled with with my healing journey of coming to grips with everything was... I had this immense amount of guilt and shame because like I said earlier, this video existed. So everybody diminished everything that I had ever done to a minute long clip. They didn't know the background. And then now I'm on the stand as a victim and I'm being re-victimized for responding to a call to help a mom where the suspect attacked me. It's not like, you know, and I hate to even talk about this, but it's not like it was, you know, a pet check where I just see this guy and I jump out of my car and I assault him. I was called to that house. Like what more <laughs> right. legal justification do you need? And it just did not go that way. I remember reading from the post guidelines, which is, you know, the police officer standards and trainings, the paragraph about reasonable detention or reasonable suspicion with a detention. And it's black and white and it's still not enough. And as the days went on, I start reading my homicide report and we're going into my statements and I get to the part where I say, you know, I saw, I looked down the barrel of my gun and I heard the trigger click and I knew he was going to kill me. And I look at the suspect and he smiles and nods. 
And so I look at the jury and I'm like, please tell me someone saw that. Like, yeah. And half of the jurors are, half of the jurors are asleep. They're doodling in their notebooks. <sighs> They're shaking their head at me. Like they think I'm making it up. And so I knew within like the first two or three days that this was not going good. And, you know, lo and behold, he was acquitted after, I think it was three and a half days of deliberations. They acquitted him of all charges. They found him guilty of negligent discharge of a firearm. And they hung on three charges, including battery of a police officer. I think it was um, removal of a police officer's firearm. And I think resisting arrest because they were so in belief of what the defense was saying that he was in self-defense of me. I was the aggressor. It was my fault. I should have known better. So everything he did to me was fine. And, you know, one of the things that really sticks out to me is I remember the defense attorney saying, if you believe that a cop is not doing their job, you can take the, your gun and kill them. And that's okay. Yeah. And the judge let it slide. I've said this to everyone that I've talked to about this case. In fact, there was a, a deputy here in the warehouse right before this podcast, and I was talking to him about this. And everyone has the same disbelief and anger, which is this. Not only is there no justice being served in this case, but now we have case law. We have, we have precedents that anyone who doesn't want to be arrested basically can fight the cop, take their gun, and be proven that in and bef- and, and past cases, that's just self-defense. Exactly. Yeah. And he even gave an interview to Inside Edition, <laughs> which is national. Millions and millions of people see it where he says, like, you can punch a cop over and over and over in the face and it doesn't matter. Like, that's against the law. We have means to, you know, if you think you were unlawfully detained or arrested, like, we have avenues. It doesn't go, like, assault and murdering a cop is still a crime. And I had so many people come to me and be like, but if he said that, like, is this true? You know, my sister is on patrol in the same city that I worked in. She works for the same department. And she was like, Megan, we are freaking out. Like, what is the standard then? Are we afraid that, you know, we're going to get, you know, shot at or beaten up or, you know, worse? And it's going to be our fault because this is the precedent. No. And that honestly was what set me off to go public. People aren't going to like to hear this comment, but it's, it's true more than it's not true. And it has to do with body cams. You did not have a, a, a body worn camera on you. Correct. As, as I heard the story. Right. Body cams, as much as as annoying as they can be, and as no one wants to wear them, a body cam would have. It sounds like, and do you agree with this statement? It would have. It wouldn't have been a he said she said thing. It would have proven everything you said and everything you did, and maybe painted a different picture. Would a body worn cam possibly been the difference in this? I don't think so. Well, this is a little bit of you know insider softball. So I don't think so. And the only reason why I say that is because I've had many conversations with the deputy district attorney and the district attorney, and they failed, had, you know, pure malfeasance in my case because they thought the video was enough evidence. The suspect gave two separate confessions. He gave more details about trying to murder me than I gave. We had mom's um, admission to calling the cops was actually to report 
that the son woke up that morning and said he wanted to murk her, which she interpreted as kill. So that's why she armed herself with a knife. So had I have known that, he actually would have gone to jail for felony criminal threats. And I could have probably got him for battery because he was chasing around the house trying to attack her. None of those statements were allowed in court. We had two eyewitnesses. One lady even gave an interview to ABC7 saying that, you know, she started crying because she thought she was going to watch me get murdered. My district attorney didn't call in one person. It was me and my two partners, and that was it. The judge would not allow either of the suspect's confessions to be heard in court. He waived his rights. He wanted to speak. He was able to give, you know, good and bad, right and wrong. He understood what he did, and none of that was heard. So, you know, I do think body cams are helpful. Obviously, it helps, you know, to exonerate cops as well as it helps to show anything else. But this was just a systemic failure. And to show that, you know, sometimes video is not enough because we based my entire case on a video and we lost. Yeah. And I'm assuming this set a precedent on how this type of situation is going to go in the state of California, correct? I mean, I sure hope so. I'm actually going to Sacramento tomorrow morning and I'm going to be speaking at a press conference in front of the Capitol about trying to work putting out three new public safety bills. One of them is in response to what happened to me and my jury selection. So AB 3070, which is what allowed the explicit bias towards law enforcement, those jurors to sit up there. We are trying to reform that bill. And then we're also adding a firearm enhancement, trying to reinstate that back and then allowing, you know, armed police officers at every school. So that's a little off, but we're trying to at least take what happened to me and transform it for good to show that not only is this happening to law enforcement, it's happening to victims. It's happening to our community members. This isn't an isolated incident. Well, I, I love that part of the story because it, it shows that you're a fighter and you could have easily, when your community failed you, just you know curled up and said well life sucks and there's there's really you know just completely detached yourself from that that whole uh you know part of your life and and that that part of that that profession and and you haven't and yeah. and you're fighting for things and anything that you get changed uh hopefully is something that keeps it happening from the next person and the next person cuz it's not going to stop cops are still whether whether they should or shouldn't Keep doing the job. Keep showing up to 911 calls. You have no reason to do your job. Uh, and that's just, that's just human. That's a human condition. Why, why would I go right. to this call as fast as possible only to have no one have my back? But if you keep fighting right. these things and hopefully making some sort of changes, it'll let future police officers know there are safeguards put in place for me to do my job. Absolutely. You know, evil has been around since the beginning of time and we're never going to take away the criminals. We're never going to take away the lawlessness, but if we can do little things to at least show the cops and the cops that unfortunately become victims of crime, that you still have a worthiness because I remember sitting on the stand and realizing that, a jury of my peers do not believe that I am a victim of an attempted murder because of the patches on my shoulders. Like how awful is that to discriminate somebody for a job that they signed to protect you? You know, 
law enforcement, I don't need to tell you guys this, but it's the most selfless, thankless job in the world. We don't need anything else to be bad actors in the institution of law enforcement. So I just didn't want to be diminished to the worst couple minutes of my life. And at least at the end of the day, at the end of my life, you know, even if these bills don't get passed, at least I can say I tried because nobody deserves to be re-victimized by the system. The aftermath of a critical incident should not be more traumatizing than the incident in itself. And I just refuse to accept that as a status quo. Well, it reminds me of a, of a saying as soon as you, you said it uh, is the only thing needed for evil to succeed is good people to do nothing. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, uh, telling your story, and I hope that you're able to go on multiple different platforms throughout the next couple of years and tell your story because every cop needs to hear this and every person needs to hear this because um, this is probably the most ridiculous case I've ever heard. I, I heard the story, but until you hear it from, you know, from, from your lips and the actual truth of what happened, it's even crazier than what I thought or, or could have imagined. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate the time and the space and, you know, being able to talk to me and share my story. It means a lot. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. We'll see you on Fox News soon. <laughs> yeah, you will. All right. Thanks again. So this is why we decided to stop doing or, or re rename Dumbass Cop of the Week. A rebranding. Yeah. Because at face value, if we saw the video that I'm going to, I'm going to get it from her, but, uh, if we saw that video, it would be a lot of how the hell, or, you know, what an idiot. She didn't train enough. She shouldn't be there. He got her gun. You know, she did all this. And then you get the full story of someone that was actually there, the only person that was actually there for a while that was law enforcement. And it's kind of like it's exactly what you said. It's You just go, what the hell happened? Not saying that nothing could have went better. Um because that's that's law enforcement. That's in anything. That's right. Yeah. That's with anything. So, but. well, yeah. So we, we want to do a little bit of a, a of an of an AAR, and not for the purposes of now hearing a story and then go back and telling her what what, what she should have uh, done better or different. Because that's there's a time and a place for that. I, I do believe in AARs, and you know, and some people don't like going back and 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 doing that although that's a necessary evil like we have to learn from from what just happened so the next time someone gets in that situation they can hopefully not create the same mistakes um but after hearing her story i i, I have to say you know my pre my preconceived notions of of what happened were, weren't necessarily true so if we want to talk about this incident the first person that could have done better Oddly enough, and that's something that we can't change, is the mother did not do a good job of explaining to the dispatcher why why she needed cops there, what the what the full story was, and she didn't really know what she was completely walking into, and that's of no fault of her own. Yeah, could could a dis and we'd have to we'd have to unroll this much you know a, a lot more. Could the dispatcher have asked more questions or better questions? I'm assuming the dispatcher did and just didn't get the, you know, the, the right Yeah, because it's her baby boy. It's my baby boy. You know, mm. and, and that's a mother thing. I know most moms would help their sons bury a dead body because, you know, every, every, I've never seen a mom in a courtroom go, yeah, send his ass to jail. He's, he did it. He needs to earn Like, it, it's just like you, you're, they're in denial. Then don't call the cops on your son. 
You know, in a weird way. Like, you yeah. can't have it both yeah, ways. exactly. You can't. It's like the domestic violence wife that hates the police for taking her husband to jail when she called. That, <laughs> right, yeah. You know, it's like, right. I'm not saying don't call us, but I'm also saying you can't have the best of both worlds. Right. And then Megan goes on to say that, you know, the, I guess the, the mom went silent for dispatch, you know, for, for, for a long time as well. and wasn't given to scripture. So she, she gets put in this situation where she doesn't know everything. Um, but it sounds like to me that she took in all, she took in all the indicators, was trying to de-escalate, was completely in the right to just pat him down. And and ensure that, you know, for her own safety, what was going on. And he was showing all of his intent right there. Yeah. I'm going to headbutt you. I'm going to kill you. And even before that, I mean, we've had guests on here that have talked about their cases. And it said, you know, the indicators that he showed from the get-go, from the morning he woke up, that should have been able to be used in court and used against him when he said, I'm going to murk you or whatever to his mom. Right. And his mom felt the need. She know, Who knows that guy best? His mother. She felt the need to carry a knife around during right. all this. And it, obviously, Megan said that, you know, like she didn't know a lot of this when she walked up. But the fact that's what court's for is the fact that now we know all this. We should be able to use it because you said in another episode, we call those indicators. That's right. You know. Why would why did this situation happen the way it happened? It's probably because that guy woke up right. and chose violence, literally. And you want to talk about just a crazy incident that I, I that asking her to live with and shake is staring down the barrel of your own service pistol, and luckily it had a stovepipe and went click. That's. That's crazy, and I even said it before. And and she can she can beat herself up and say, well, yeah, I probably should have went to to more hand to hand training. At the end of the day, I forgot to ask. I wanted to ask what what this what how big he was, but at the end of the day, I I he was he wasn't five eight one forty almost. You know, very, very few men are, and so she she could have she could have done that, and she can beat herself up all she wants about that. And maybe it could have helped. But at the end of the day, like I said, there's weight classes. And he was going to win that fight. Yeah. Uh, eventually, maybe, maybe, maybe your hand-to-hand training may have slowed him down, but he was going to win that fight. Yeah. And and you know, I, I would like to I'd venture to say, if unless you're a black belt at that size, I don't know. A lot of people are going to. And everything up for that this. that would normally say like, well, and and that they would teach, create distance. And, and then introduce, whether it be a taser, introduce something. But she never had the opportunity to create that distance because he had he had a hold of her. Yeah. So it, she really was in a in a bad predicament from the get go. What and what I would believe is essentially doing doing everything right. And and he didn't. Um, I've been in those situations a million times where you're you're putting their hands behind the back and they are doing the whole, uh, but they're not fully trying to get away. They're trying to show you that. They do not condone you taking them to jail, and it's sometimes it's sometimes a show for anybody watching. But they're gonna go with you, right? They're they're gonna go, and then all of a sudden, it turns south, and that's when I feel like it, when he grabbed her arm, you, you can't get away, you right? Know? Because she had no reason to break contact. Yeah, and you know, but so many yeah, and there's a lot of things that went wrong, but the things that went right, whether it's you know in her control or not. The gun didn't go off, or she'd have been executed. That's insane. Right? To me. That's insane there. to me. That this. How dangerous is this guy? And then it's almost like a movie when he's now close. You know, closing the distance, and it's already shown he's going to kill her. 
your backup shows up and I, fills them with seven or eight rounds I at was that getting moment. Chills. I was too. because she was talking about when she started saying my earpiece came out, I was like, Oh, the boys are coming. You just didn't know because that's when when calls come out like that, like so they can hear her. She can't hear the response because the earpiece was out. But she's going, I'm fighting, I'm fighting, and then she's not responding. I guarantee you traffic laws were broken by cops to get <laughs> Rightfully there. Rightfully so. I mean, it, it, that's that, awesome. It's awesome they showed up in time. It's The only thing that's not awesome about it is that they, I'll say it, that they didn't kill him. Yeah. He deserved it. Because you can't trust the legal system to do the right thing as completely played out in this incident. Yeah. That's an insane story. And I mean, again, she had to go through, um, she was, the whole um, podcast, breaking it down and stuff. And that was one of the big reasons why me and you got together was because you were like, it does need to be broken down, but it needs to be broken down from a law enforcement perspective with somebody that has a lot of tactical experience. And that's where I think we, we, we compliment each other. Yeah. And yeah, I, I would never feel comfortable doing an AR on a police officer with, with without without you here with me because as much as I as much as just like the lad pod, podcast I can rattle off 12 things at parallel at the end of the day they're not a direct you know all the way through the job parallel so you know it, it, we have to have that law enforcement you know counter view uh, an opinion to it yeah. is there anything as a law enforcement officer that, that you saw that you're like wouldn't wouldn't have done it wouldn't have done it like that, or I haven't seen the video, and I know you haven't either. Um, but she describes it very well. And she does. To be honest with you, I don't ever. I've showed up just like her mindset. You yeah. just show up because it's probably the second or third DV you've been to all week. And yeah. It, there's just no way that you can go to every call, like this person's going to try right, and kill right. me because you can't go to every call like you're on high alert yeah because then you end up being a dis- then you end up getting complaints because you're too direct you're too mono you're too standoffish and people think that's rude because to them you're coming to help them with their problem so when you're you know you're standing and you're there's a distance and you're like calm down right and people are like, I, why are you yelling at me yeah, i would almost think in that mindset that everyone's out to get me and every call could be my last even if it, it maybe it should be somewhere deep in the back of your mind but it can't be in the front of your mind and your tactics and how you move and talk and and and, and uh deal with people or that will create the instance you're trying not to have it will create an acorn falling on your car <laughs> and you fucking combat rolling and jumping Gosh. your mag into yeah. it yeah and i saw that because mike as much as you know I could disagree with Mike Glover a lot, but he brought that up and he said, uh, you know what? There is, there is, um, a downside to having a f- that mindset all the yeah. time is too Absolutely. much is that, that happens. Yeah. So. I've, I've been in vehicles with guys like that in the middle of Africa and they're on high alert, just ready to grab their gun at, at anyone that's following us too close. And I have to go, Hey, that's what people do in this country is just follow you too close. It, it, put, you, put your gun down yeah. <laughs> at, at cool. And like, I mean, you, I'll ask you this because I know as a cop, for me, I have to, I have to do that mindset where you calm down because I can't. If you're on high alert all the time, it's like this. You have one mission and one mission only, and it's to stay alive where if you can't think 
or break down anything else to do your job. Because your job, I mean, even your job, your job, a lot of it was trigger time. But you also have to problem solve and maybe not do trigger time, I would imagine, if you can. They, in intel gathering and... Well, yeah. Well, they, well let's debunk this myth that, that we see in the comments sometimes about, you know, being the Delta Force. And, you know, it's easy for, you know, you guys just get to go around and kill people. They tell you in OTC... We don't pay you extra money to be in the Delta Force to kill everyone. We pay you to not shoot. We send we send you on hostage rescue missions to only kill the bad guys. If we were just going to shoot everyone, we'd send the, the SEALs or the Rangers. So not shooting is actually one of the biggest parts of our job, is properly identifying targets, properly assessing the situation, and only removing the people that need to be removed. Yeah. I mean... I remember my first call. My first call on my own was a domestic violence call. Or was it? I guess it was just an argument. And the guy, the woman called. The guy was being a dick. I was there with the female partner who I had a couple years on. And the guy goes, fuck this, and starts walking to his bedroom. And I'm like, <laughs> dude, I'm like sitting here thinking, like, he's going to go grab a gun. Right, what's in a bedroom? He's going to come fucking uh, out yeah. and he's going to kill us. And I remember she was outside talking to the woman and I was right. talking to him. And. I didn't know at the time you could just be like, no, you ain't going to the bedroom, dog. Stay out here. <laughs> or if not, I'm going to put hands on you. Right. And he walked in there, and I was like, I remember I was like, I need you to come inside. And my voice was <laughs> <laughs> And, yeah. but Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I don't know, trade stories or anything, but I, it's funny you say that because I remember the night I got shot. The first thing I, I, I said to myself when I was about to report it was, be cool. Because <laughs> they're going to make fun of you in the team room for the rest of your life. You go on this radio and start start wailing, I've been shot. 